The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. <laughs> okay. Wow, so many questions. There's only must be at least one question per person, maybe more. Yeah, it's very very impressive. You're very good at asking questions. <laughs> so that's great. Uh, Okay, anyway, let's waste no time. Let's just get down to it and uh, let's see what happens as we go along here. Dear Ajahn, I thought of a way you can answer when someone asks, how are you? Say, I'm ready to end it all. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. <laughs> really keeps people guessing. So, uh, I, I don't know, I, I must admit, I thought about the idea, how are you? And again, if you ask the Buddha, what would the Buddha say? Yeah, how are you? And uh, I don't know, I think maybe one of the things the Buddha might say is uh, suffering arising, suffering passing away. That's one answer he might say. Yeah, yeah I don't think he would say good, <laughs> like most people do. Uh, and this is what you find in the suttas. You find, uh, you know, the famous Bhikkhuni Vajira, that's what she said. You find this in the um, Kachanagotta Sutta, which is in the uh, Nidana Sangyutta on dependent origination, where you find that the person who is a noble one, they know that there's only dukkha arising and dukkha passing away here. Yeah. Suffering arising, suffering passing away. Anyway, just uh, an idea. But um, yeah, so I'm ready to end it all. Yeah, that would be, uh, that's a good one. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's just uh, move on now. Dear Ajahn, thank you for your teaching. Sometimes I experience agitation and the stillness at the same time. I notice one part of my mind is still while I can keep maintaining the stillness. What is this phenomena? Uh, how do I let go of the agitation in a situation like this? Um, yes. So there is kind of a duality in your mind, and yes, you want to calm down the uh, agitation more. Uh, a lot of the time it is just about staying with the peace, staying with the breath, and gradually it uh, calms down if you're able to do that. Uh, but sometimes the agitation make you know, you have to kind of try to look at where the agitation comes from, uh, because that is kind of the critical issue. Uh, and uh, if the agitation comes from the fact that you are feeling pain in the body, for example, then it is likely you won't be able to let it go easily because it means your mind is maybe obsessed with the pain in the body and you can't let it go. In that case, it might be better to uh, change your posture, Yeah, something very simple like that, do something else for a while and then come back again and sit later on. But uh, there is going to be something, always something that underlies that agitation. There's some kind of desire going on in your mind. What is it that you're desiring here? What is the reason for that? What is it that you are kind of thinking of uh, behind the scenes that is keeping your mind interested and keeping your mind moving? Uh, the mind doesn't move on its own. Uh, it moves because uh, there is something that drives that movement of the mind. And there's usually some kind of craving. Uh, and ill will is also a kind of craving, really. Uh, yeah, You have ill will towards somebody. It's a movement of the mind. It wants to sort things out or wants to tell people off or whatever. These are all cravings of something here. Yeah. So there's something there which is uh, agitating you, some desire of some kind. Uh, usually if you keep on watching the breath or you keep on watching a meditation object, these things tend to tend to die down because they need the fuel. We were talking about the fuel before for craving and the fuel is always seeing the beautiful in something. Yeah. There's something you are interested in, the mind wants to go there because you are you find it Fascinating. You find it positive in one way or another. Or at the very least, you find it better than meditation. That's the kind of minimum requirement. Uh, and so look, try to look at that and see what is going on. Uh, and uh, then uh, just keep going and calm it down. Uh, and sometimes the mind may get obsessed with certain things and it can be very hard to calm down. You find it very difficult. Uh, and sometimes it may not work because the... Um, underlying defilement or condition is just too strong, you can't really deal with it. That's the case, get up, walk around a bit, have a cup of tea, do something else for a while, then come back to your seat afterwards. Don't keep on knocking your head against the proverbial brick wall. Actually, we don't have brick walls here, but cement walls. Don't, 
don't hit your brick against the cement wall yeah because <laughs> you get more pain you get even more agitated afterwards uh, that's often the problem if we try too hard to kind of force our way through the problem sometimes the problem gets worse because <laughs> the mind just doesn't want to do these things yeah it, it rebels even more uh, and that rebellion is also a problem uh, so if the mind rebels, okay, allow it to rebel a little bit, go out and, and follow along. Yeah. Ajahn Brahm has this expression of throwing the dog a bone. Yeah, Your mind is like a dog, sometimes it needs a bit of a bone, so you allow it to chew on the bone for a while, okay, the dog gets satisfied, and you sit back down again. Yeah. Our minds are like dogs, they are like, um, they are working on habit, yeah, that's the problem with the mind. All right, so uh, next question is as follows. Dear Ajahn, it, is it really possible to send merit to our loved ones who have died? If yes, then how can we still attract them towards the Dhamma? Ah, that's interesting. Can we attract them towards the Dhamma? Hmm. Okay, so the first thing is, uh, uh, is it possible to send merit to the loved ones who have died? According to the suttas, it is possible. Uh, there is a sp specific sutta that discusses this very problem. Uh, and that is a discussion between the Buddha and the Brahmin Janusoni. I, th I usually mention this when I get these kind of questions. And the Brahmin Janusoni asks the Buddha, is it possible to do good acts of kindness towards people who have passed away. Can they re actually receive that kindness? Yeah, Transferring merit, uh, uh, these kind of things. Uh, and the Buddha, it depends. That's what he says. He doesn't say yes, he said it depends. Uh, depends on what? Depends on where they are reborn. And the only realm where people are able to receive uh, the merit that you make for them is in the peta loka, pretasa. Yeah, ghost realm, that's the only realm. In the other realms, you cannot receive it. So if they have been reborn in the Pretaloka, they will receive the merit you do. So every time you do an act of kindness, share it with somebody. It's a wonderful thing to do. But what happens if you don't have any relatives in the Pretaloka? What if you want to share it with your parents and they have been reborn as devas instead of Pretas? Then what happens? Uh, and uh, the Buddha says well, what happens then is that in all our lifetimes we have so many family members guaranteed to be someone there who's been reborn in the Pretaloka. Yeah, because there's so many family members, so many have passed away. So your offering is never wasted. There's always someone there who can receive those offerings. And if your parents can't receive it or your closest relatives can't receive it, there will be someone else who says, thank you very much. Whoa, hooray. Thank you for supporting us in this miserable realm of the Praetors. And then they will be happy. So can you attract them to Dhamma? Well, I don't know. I think it is hard to practice Dhamma in the Pretaloka because it is a realm of suffering and you have plenty enough just trying to kind of um, live and trying to survive and well, to survive probably unfortunately you will survive for a while but trying just to kind of deal with the suffering I think that's probably more than enough in the Preta Loka it's hard I think to practice Dhamma there and uh, you never really hear about anyone practicing Dhamma in the Preta Loka is it impossible? Is it impossible? Yeah? Okay. Really? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> From, maybe it is. Maybe you're right about that one. I'm not... Because yeah. I have heard some yeah. teaching that if you are reborn yeah. any of the three lower realms, yeah. it will take you infinite lifetimes even come back to a human realm or any other realm to... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 It says in the... Uh, I think in the... What is it? In the... Um, Bala Pandita Sutta. 129. It says that if you're reborn as an animal or uh, in a hell realm, then it will take often a long, long time before you're reborn. But that also will depend a little bit on the circumstances. Uh, not absolutely given. It depends on why you get reborn there, what kind of karma you made. But in the Pretaloka, according to the suttas at least, it's a bit more unclear exactly how, uh, you know, how... Um, how difficult it is because in the animal realm obviously you don't have the faculties to do it in the hell realm far too much suffering but in the Praetaloka it's a bit more it's, it's kind of halfway between the animals and the humans uh, 
So, uh, but it doesn't. There is no indication in the suttas that you can really practice dhamma there. So it's very hard. So all you can really do, I suppose, is help them gain some merit. They get reborn in the heavenly realm, and then if they have done their homework as human beings, they get reborn in heaven. They hear the dhamma. They think, "Yay, the dhamma!" And then they continue in the heavenly realm when they become devas there instead. I think that's the best bet, rather than trying to steer them towards dhamma. It's gonna, it's gonna be hard, I think. Yeah. All right. Dear Arjan, much appreciation for your 2 p.m. talk. Questions. How much brain power is involved in will? I like the suggestion to soften the will like a gentle surrender. Yeah, it is like a gentle, you can call it surrender if you like. Um, so uh, the, the idea is then to just to allow the will just gradually just to kind of dissipate and just to be aware. It's awareness without will is really what this is about. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and of course, you talk using the word brain power here. The idea is that if you use the will, it tends to tire you out. Yeah, if you have a long day at work and you use the will all the time, you tend to feel tired. But if you do the opposite, if you meditate and you come get into a peaceful state of meditation, you, the opposite tends to happen. You are energized by good meditation. Huh? So the two things are going in opposite directions. So there is kind of, kind of, a lot of tiredness. You can call it brain power if you like, but a lot of tiredness comes from overusing the will. Yeah. So softening the will is a very good idea. Sometimes it's hard, yeah, because you want to be aware without willing it. And keeping awareness without willing it is, is tricky because sometimes you use your will to stay aware. Yeah, this is what pe most people do. So they, you watch the breath. How do you maintain the awareness of the breath? Well, actually, you use a bit of willpower usually. That's what most people do. And so once, if you let go of the willpower entirely, for many people, the mind is then all over the place and they fall asleep and all of these kind of things. So it's a tricky, tricky thing. And that's why you need to build up all the supporting qualities as much as possible. The more purity you have, the easier it is to sustain that awareness without using willpower. That's where all those preliminary factors come in. And then you sit down and you just relax and the kind of the focus comes and you are ready and able to stay with the breath or whatever else that you have to do. So you have to kind of, it's a gentle transition. Yeah, you move towards more, less and less willpower over time, gradually moving in that direction. You learn what it means not to use your will, just to sit back, just to relax, just to be aware without forcing it in any way. Yeah, something like that. So, good luck, see what happens. Dear Ajahn, could you please tell us the story of how you went from lay life to monasticism? Many thanks. I, the story is very short. I was a Buddhist monk. It's, this is what I think anyway. I was a Buddhist monk in a past life. So when I got reborn in this life, I was just following the habit of a past life. I'm just following habit. That's why I'm a Buddhist monk. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> It's a good habit, right? You've got to say it's a good habit. At least I'm doing some... You have good habits, you have bad habits. That's one of my few good habits, becoming a Buddhist monk. Yeah. So it's just a habit. It's very easy to think, yeah, I'm really smart. Yeah, I've got the best philosophy, the best religion in the world. Why? Because I'm superior. I am supremely <laughs> wise and I know exactly what I need to do. It's, it's easy to flatter oneself. To think that one is somehow really good and able to differentiate between good and bad philosophies, good and bad spiritual paths. Uh, and, uh, but uh, usually we just follow habits. Uh, yeah, we're not that smart. No one is particularly smart. We just, and if we are smart, that's just another habit. You're smart at mathematics or smart at some kind of worldly thing. Yeah. It's another habit you have, you bring with you from a past life. Uh, so um, that's what I think. But I wrote, uh, there's a booklet, if you want to find out, there's a booklet called Why I Am a Buddhist Monk. 
Yeah, you can find that online. I think it's online. BSAA website. Check it out. Read it. It's quite. People say they like that booklet. So it's a much longer answer than what I gave now. Yeah, but that's kind of the conclusion I came to. Yeah, it's probably just following habits from the past. That's probably the reason why I'm Buddhist monk. Yeah, and that's kind of scary. Yeah, it's scary because you then it makes you wonder. Well, if that is the case, is being Buddhist monk just another trap? Yeah, because if you're following habits, am I really doing it because actually it's good or is it another trap? Because everything is habit. So we are trapped in our personality. We're trapped by so many things in life. Is Buddhist monasticism a trap? And once you think that thought, you think, okay, I really have to check out these teachings properly here. So that actually means that if you use that thought correctly, it makes you more interested to ensure that you actually are on the right track, Yeah, that you actually are following a teaching that is really worthwhile. And as far as I can tell, I am, so I'm still a Buddhist monk. Otherwise, I would have disrobed a long time ago. I said, jeepers, I'm just trapped in this crazy robes. And, you know, you had to shave your hair every fortnight and this kind of things. But uh, so, um, and that's, that's very fascinating when you see that. And then you investigate. And, of course, the more you investigate, the more you realize that this is really a path to freedom and liberation. It's exactly a liberation from those very habits that you had, had before. Huh? But it takes away a lot of ego when you think it's habit, yeah? That's kind of very handy here. I didn't really do it, it just happened to me. So no need to feel very proud or feel very kind of, feel you are wonderful and marvelous. (laughs) And we are all, if you see that in yourself, the fact that you are a product of habits and conditions, etc., it really, there's no room for ego there anymore. Yeah, the ego just kind of dissolves in that kind of paradigm where there is just cause and conditions and things. It's a useful way of thinking about uh, life and about one's life, one's own life in particular. Yeah. So, um, there's many other things that could be said about this, uh, but um, don't know if I can say anything more. I think one of the things that I remember, which was very fascinating, when I was uh, uh, young, I think I was about 12 years old, uh, I had this fantasy of living by myself in the forest. Uh, I just wanted to live somewhere in the forest uh, by myself. And that sounded like a really cool idea to me. Yeah. And uh, later on I thought, gee, that's very fascinating. How, how come you have this fantasy? Yeah. And I reckon the only explanation I have is that it must come from a past life experience. Uh, where else would it come from? Uh, do 12-year-olds normally have fantasies of living in the forest by themselves? I, I don't know. But I don't think so. I haven't heard about it before, so I don't think so. And there are a few things like that, yeah? And I was also very attracted to travel to Asia when I was at university. I don't know why I, was, I just wanted to go to Asia. It just seemed like a good thing to do, to travel to Asia. So I traveled to Asia. And that's where I started reading about Buddhism, yeah? So everything kind of fell into place. It's weird. I don't know how these things work out, but uh, good habits from the past. So make sure you have lots of good habits in this life. That's kind of the... The teaching here, lots of good habits and maximize the good habits. When you get reborn in the next life, you can just follow along. The railway tracks are already laid and you just roll along those same railway tracks. You cannot be derailed anymore because the habit from the past are so strong. That's the real the, the answer here, right? This is how you ensure that you carry on in the future. This is what it says in the suttas as well. Yeah, you remember the teaching from the past. You carry on from where you are now. If you have a lot of metta and compassion in this life, you bring those qualities with you in the future. So just lay down some very powerful positive traits in this life. Make sure they have very strong habits and carry on in the future. All right. So next one. Dear Ajahn, are we reborn immediately after death, or do we stay in the Peta realms or the Bardo state, according to Mahayana? Your thoughts, Ajahn, please. Mm. I see. This is one of those um, interesting questions that come up a lot. And the reason why it is interesting is because in the uh, kind of Theravada, developed Theravada ideas, it is said that you die and then you get reborn straight away. There's the Patisandhi Vinyana, which is that rebirth link in consciousness, the last consciousness. And then there's a, no, so there's a Chutta Chitti, which is the uh, passing away mind. And it's a Patisandhi Vinyana, which re- links you with rebirth straight afterwards. Uh, 
one goes on to the, from the next one to the other one. So from that you get this feeling that there is nothing in between. Yeah, it just goes from one life to the next life. But uh, this is a, the traditional Theravada interpretation, and that's argued in the Katavattu, the famous Abhidhamma work which discusses these issues. But uh, there's a lot of reason to think that is not exactly what is going on, uh, that there is a state in between. The antara bhava, as it is called. Antara means uh, between. Bhava means existence, uh, in between existence. Uh, and uh, the evidence for that is actually found in the suttas, uh, which is very fascinating. Some very strong evidence in the suttas. The most strongest evidence in the suttas uh, is a sutta found in the... Um, Sangyuta Nikaya, Connected Discourses, the 44th Sangyuta, which I think is the Avyakata Sutta, Sangyuta, is that right? The unexplained? Something like that. I think it's 44. I could get, get this wrong. 44, number 9, something like that. And this Sutta, uh, there is the Buddha, and there is a person that he is discussing with. Who is that person? Um, can you remember? No. Where he told, no, you, you haven't told you which sutta it is yet, so you'd be probably, <laughs> I'm asking for the impossible. But there's the Buddha is talking to someone, and this person is asking the Buddha, well, after you die, but before you are reborn, what supports your mind? What supports you in that period? Yeah, specifically, after you died, before you are reborn, what supports your mind or consciousness? What does the Buddha say? He says craving, yeah, what, what you might expect. So craving drives on that mind. But it's very explicit, after you die, before you are reborn. And that seems to say very clearly that there is an antra bhava. And there's many other things as well in the suttas which indicate that. So I say, yes, there is some kind of intermediate um, existence. And this has very interesting consequences. One of the things that you often hear in Theravada circles is how important your last thought moment is. Get your last thought moment wrong and you are bound to go to a very dodgy destination in your future life. Yeah, This is kind of what you hear in Theravada circles. But if there is an intermediate, and that makes very good sense. If you one moment you are in the next life, the next one you are in the future life, that idea makes a lot of sense because you are taking your last moment directly into your next life. But if there is an intermediate state, then that argument kind of falls by the wayside. Yeah, it is not so strong anymore, because your last thought moment, well, it just takes you to the antrabhava, and whatever happens there is what determines where you get reborn. And what happens there? Well, what happens there, you know what it is like. You often hear about people having the life review and these kind of things, very much part of near-death experience. So you have your life review, you judge yourself as to what is happening. There's a sutta about this in the Anguttara 3, uh, which talks about how someone goes to King Yama, yeah, and Yama asks him, well, you know, how did you live your life? Oh, you know, I did this and that. Well, was that a good idea? You you're going to die, they shouldn't you have known better? Oh, but I, I was foolish or whatever. And uh, in that sutta, it is not Yama who judges you, but it, you can see from the way it is phrased, it's a person judging themselves. They realize they did bad things, and then they take themselves to the bad realm. You don't need anyone else to do it. That kind of makes sense, yeah, that it works like that. So you have that life review. You stay in the Antrabhava existence for a while, however long that is. And then when the Kamma is kind of ready and things come together, then you get reborn wherever you're going to go next. That is equivalent to the Bardo state. It's equivalent to many things when we talk about near-death experiences. Yeah, You don't get reborn. You, go, you have some intermediate existence that everyone talks about when they have a near-death experience. So I, th I think that is... Uh, the way. So, and that means that you can be a bit more relaxed when you're dying, yeah? It means you don't have to kind of stress out to kind of get rid of the, that bad state of mind. Oh no, I must think, I must have metta, please, metta now, and I'm going to go to hell unless I have a, you know, if I think, no, don't think about that person, no, <laughs> please. And because people tell you, don't think about the white elephant, you're going to think about that white elephant. Yeah, it's, There's no choice. It's just bang. It manifests in your mind. And so it becomes very stressful if that's how we're supposed to die. So don't think like that when you die. Instead, just enjoy dying. Yeah, Dying, if you have been a good person, 
is generally very peaceful, very nice. You can see that with other people when they die who have lived a good life. They are peaceful at the time of death. They're just enjoying the process. And that's very wonderful. So it's a time to just enjoy and let go of this world and carry on rather than stressing out about thinking the right kind of thought. So um, you can see how philosophical ideas like this actually affect how we live. It's very fascinating. And you get these ideas wrong, actually it affects you in a bad way. So these things matter. They may sound like philosophy, but actually they have very practical consequences, which is interesting here. So, yes, so I say that there is not only according to Mahayana Buddhism, but I I would say according to early Buddhism as well. In other words, the teaching of the Buddha as well. There is uh, Antrabhava, as far as I can see here. And there were many of the early schools of Buddhism that actually had this as a teaching, that Antrabhava existed. Theravada was one of the schools that did not have it. So the early schools had uh, different ideas about this. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, thanks for your wonderful teachings. Uh, what is your favorite sutta, the sutta that inspired you the most? Uh, many thanks. Oh, one oh, oh. very difficult one. Huh? Is it? Uh, that one. Yeah, it is, I, mean, I think it changes over time as well, right? It's uh, there are different kind of suttas, but uh, that's true. I think in the in the early days, it's kind of interesting what uh, how this. Kind of more goes from one sutta to another one because they're all so beautiful. It's just how you see them. But I remember one of the suttas that early on made a big impact on me when I just started out my monastic life uh, was a sutta about the is with King Pasenadi and the Buddha. And uh, King Pasenadi goes to the Buddha and he says to the Buddha that, uh, "Oh, I just come from the council with all my counselors, uh, and they keep talking and they don't listen to what I have to say, uh, and, and they're just arguing with each other." Uh, yeah, and uh, so you know what sh- what should be done? What what can we do? Huh? And uh, and any kind of answer his own question. Yeah, what can we do except just live well and do good things? And the Buddha says, yes, that's exactly right. And the Buddha says, give this beautiful simile. Huh? Buddha says, well, it's just like we are just like uh, when we our life uh, is like uh, as if there are mountains coming from all directions, uh, mountains walking towards you. Yeah, big mountains. Uh, crushing all life as they move forward. And a man comes from the east, says there's a mountain coming from the east. There's a mountain coming from the south, says another man. One coming from the west, one coming from the north, each one of them crushing all living beings. And the Buddha says, well, what would you do if that were the case? And King Pasenadi says, well, what can you do except live well and do what is right and make good karma? What else can you do if mountains crush everything? And the Buddha tells him, I inform you, yeah, I tell you, um, old age and death are coming from all directions, crushing all living beings as they move in from the various directions. So what, you should, so what should you be doing, great king? I should be doing good karma, <laughs> getting on with it, living well. Yeah? These are like big mountains, they're crushing everything yeah, in, their, in, their, in their path. Death is like always coming closer, ready to annihilate you in this way. And I don't know, there was something about that that made an impact on me when I started reading the suttas. Because uh, when you are quite young, it can be hard to sort of grasp the idea of um, death. Yeah, it still seems far away. I guess it always seems a bit far away, even when you get to 90. It still seems, yeah, not going to be tomorrow, so, you know, I can relax. I don't know. But... uh, it's always hard to really get into that mind state about death. But that was a powerful, I think, a powerful sutta, at least to start out with. But, um, you know, I, I think there are so many things in there that are powerful. And um, I'm just trying to think, because one of the things that I always found the most fascinating about Buddhism was that, to me, it was the answer to the meaning of life. I was always kind of obsessed about what's the meaning of life is. Am I just going to go out and work and, you know, and, and get married and have one and a half cars and two and a half dogs? Is that what I'm going to do? <laughs> That's what every, everyone has, something like that. And it kind of seemed so pointless. And from the very young age, it seemed pointless to do things in what everyone else does in the world. Why on earth do I want to do that? Surely there must be something more to life. 
It's always look, searching for meaning. And this is what I realized that Buddhism was about. I started to read the suttas. Everything was about overcoming suffering and finding happiness. And I realized this is exactly what everyone wants in their life. There was someone the other day who said that their wife said they shouldn't run away from suffering. But I disagree with that. You should run away from suffering. Because why? Because you don't want to suffer. Of course we should run away from suffering. And if you are able to run away, you can help others escape as well. Isn't that wonderful? So yes, we should absolutely try to escape suffering. And so I, at some point I realized this is the meaning of life. And of course, when you realize that you are faced with the answer to the question, the biggest question of all existence, what other question is there, part ultimately from the meaning of life? This is the big question that everyone is searching for, really. If you think you found the answer to that, you can't go any further. You can't go, you can't say, yeah, yeah, meaning of life, forget about that, I'll just get on with the other stuff. That kind of is madness. So I think this is what uh, what came to me. I can't remember if there was any one particular sutta, but it just becomes obvious uh, when you start reading the suttas uh, that this is what is it is about. Nibbanang paramang sukang. Yeah, nibbana is the highest happiness. Uh, the whole path of practice leading to away from suffering towards happiness. Uh, the uh, seven factors of awakening, the dependent liberation, just the idea of anapanasati. Uh, the whole thing is about that. Four noble truths, of course, are fully, ultimately, all about that. Uh, <laughs> I think it is a kind of overall appreciation of the Buddha's message that it is something really extraordinary about it. And uh, I was never religious before I was a Buddhist. I didn't believe anything in Christianity. I thought Christianity was crazy. I really did. I thought, what on earth is this teaching about? It makes absolutely no sense. I really couldn't make not heads nor tails of Christianity. I was lucky not to be born in a very religious family, perhaps. My family wasn't really religious at all, and I was quite content with that. But Christianity just seemed so... I mean, I don't want to say bad things about Christian people, because there are many really good Christian people, and those who live Christianity in a good way, by act, living it in a spiritual way, being kind, taking on board the spiritual parts of Christianity, marvelous. But when you, if you look at the doctrine of Christianity here, it just I could not make any sense of it at all. It sounded very strange. It sounded like some kind of ancient superstition that came out of a tiny parochial society that somehow, for some strange reason, managed to become a world religion, even though it was a tiny religion meant for a tiny little people in a tiny little place in a completely different time that fitted there but doesn't really fit anywhere else. That's kind of how I viewed Christianity. And uh, I don't know how it managed to become a world religion. It must be because there wasn't any good alternatives. Maybe there was no Buddhism around at that time, so it kind of became Christian. Uh, anyway, it's just my own kind of feelings about uh, these things. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think, uh, but I think still there is this feeling that you need something more than just materialism, uh, and that there is a spiritual side to life, which is very important. All right, let's go on to the next one. Dear Ajahn Mamali and Ajahn Nisarano, I am deeply grateful for your teachings. During the Anapanasati, you haven't said much during this retreat, but probably otherwise, all the times, probably you have said heaps. So, uh, uh, during the Anapanasati meditation, I observe long gaps between the end of the outbreath and the start of the next in-breath. I tend to lose mindfulness in these gaps. Could you please suggest any tips to avoid losing focus during these gaps between the breath? Thank you very much. So um, there's always going to be like a feeling also while you meditate. It's not just that you have in-breath and out-breath, but there's going to be a feeling. Yeah, that feeling could be, or a perception if you like, a perception of peace, a perception of something, depending on how deep your meditation is. So focus on that perception. Yeah. So when the breath stops, enjoy the peace. Because when the breath stops, there's nothing much there going on anymore. There's just peacefulness, right? And then you start to enjoy something even more profound than the breath, which eventually will allow you to let go of the breath also completely. Because the breath is like a like a vehicle to take you to a deeper place. It's a meditation object that you use to help the mind becoming tranquil. 
So enjoy the peace, yeah, and make that uh, peace expand and become deeper, uh, and just stay with that, whatever that is, uh, however that feels to you. Uh. And uh, of course, as you go deeper, uh, the breath becomes even weaker, but then you have the joys and the happinesses coming up in meditation, and then you can just stay with the joy and happiness. Uh. At very profound states of meditation, that's exactly what you do. You just stay with the joy, you stay with the happiness, you focus on that. You don't even focus on it, it's just there, and you can't really avoid focusing on it because it's so enjoyable. And then you are hopefully in business. Ajahn Asana, would you like to add something? <laughs> Maybe two. Mind the, you have that saying at the railway station, mind the gap, just to keep that in mind, you know, because the gap is actually, you know, as Ajahn Brahmali is saying, is peace, you know, it's that sort of, uh, and if there's that interest, if there's that uh, mindfulness to mind the gap, and the mind will stay with it, become interested, curious about it, and uh, that can anchor the mind even more and go into peaceful states. Of course, you hear Ajahn Brahm do his slow talking. And you notice when you get those gaps, you start to pay more attention. You think, when's he going to speak again? <laughs> so, you know, you can turn it into a, a, a you know, like an interest because uh, that, and keeping in mind, mind the gap. <laughs> so, thank you. All right. So, uh, okay, let's go on to the uh, next one. Dear Ajahn, it is, is it always that intention leads to karma? Suppose we have uh, someone without any intention to do so. Could that still result in light bad karma? Some Dhamma books mention it. Please explain that. Um, does intention always lead to kamma? You could say intention is kamma in a sense, but uh, the answer is, uh, remember that what we're talking about is really motivation. Uh, intention in itself doesn't really lead, it is kamma, but it's the color of the intention that matters. Uh, so what is the color of that intention? Is it, uh, uh, are you, you know, where are you coming from? What is driving that whole process of the mind, driving your will, so to speak? Uh, and it's always driven by something, yeah, yeah. And that something, that is what decides the karma. Is it greed? Is it ill will? Is it metta? Is it um, uh, wisdom? What is driving it? That is kind of the critical factor here. Yeah. So then, that is when you know whether there is karma or not. Uh, and a lot of the things that we do in life, there is intention, but it may not be much karma involved. Yeah, like you go back, you go back, and you vacuum your house. It's, it's kind of very neutral intention very often, uh, unless you make it into something positive, and you can. You can think, I want to do this out of compassion for my family and myself and all the visitors or whatever. Uh, you can make things into good intentions if you want to, but very often they are kind of neutral. Uh, yeah. Or you go for a walk and uh, may not be much intention at all in that. Uh, yeah. So it, look at what drives you to do things. That's how you know if there is intention, if there is karma involved in what you're doing. Yeah. So uh, the idea in uh, Buddhism is to make your intention as bright as possible. And uh, very often it is... Uh, the problem is that uh, intentions are kind of somewhere in between yeah a lot of the time as i say we don't have an intention one way or the other sometimes we may do things that have a kind of mixed bag of intentions uh, yeah we we want to be kind but to be kind we sometimes have to maybe even break the precepts a little bit or, or whatever uh, so things are kind of complicated in the edge cases so what we want to do we want to make things more as bright as we possibly can uh, so we try to not just we try to not just you know, give an offering, for example, or, or give, give a gift to somebody and be generous. But we try to do that, make that gener generosity as powerful as possible. Uh, 
We look at whether the cat person is worthy of our kindness. Yeah, we ensure that we kind of we do this with the right kind of intention. Intention of may this be part of my spiritual practice. May it be an ornament to my mind to make me happy. Or you just give because it feels really good in giving. So you try to give with the right kind of attitude, and then it is good. And uh, the Buddha specifically says, you know, where should you give? You should give where you feel inspired, where the mind calms down, the mind feels peaceful. Uh, because that inspiration teaches you about uh, how to give in a, in a good way and be inspired by it and building up the inspiration. Uh, so we try to purify acts more, to make the intentions more, uh, more wholesome, uh, but with all of these kind of ways. Uh, and try to make everything into an opportunity to make good karma. When you speak to somebody, uh, how do you speak? Are you aware of your mind state? Can you make it more pure? Can you make it more beneficial, what you're doing? And the more awareness and the more deliberateness you put into everything you do in that way, the more you can kind of purify things a little bit more. Everything has the potential to be good karma or bad karma, depending on how you approach it. If you have no intention to do something, could it still result in light bad karma? No. Impossible. So if you step on an insect on the road, couldn't see it, yeah, then no, it's not bad karma. Some Dhamma books mention it, really? Okay, I would have to see exactly what you're talking about to be able to um, talk about that. So I could kind of comment on what they're saying. And sometimes there may be some contextual material which points out what is going on there. So uh, you're very welcome to show it to me if you like. Yeah. All right. So let us go on to the next one. Greetings, Ajahn. Number one. Okay, number one. Number two. Okay, there's only two because there's already so many questions. And if there's more than one on each one, then we are in serious trouble. But uh, <laughs> let's see what happens. Number one, how to practice kindness without being run over by others. When we are kind, we expect others to be kind in return. That's right. That's the, that's the problem, isn't it? How to be kind without any expectations, especially in the close relationships, much better. So how to be kind without being run over? Well, you set boundaries. You, you, you know when to say stop. You know when it is too much. Yeah? You practice kindness, but you, you, you don't do kindness when other people are demanding it. You do kindness when you feel like being kind. I always uh, this is one of the th interesting things with someone like Ajahn Brahm. If you ask him to be kind to you so that he has to kind of follow your commands, then he will probably just look at you and kind of ignore you. <laughs> it's a good lesson, right? You don't ask for anything from, from other people, especially if, if it is kind of, uh, you know, s silly things. Uh, sometimes you can ask, of course, if you need support, but not kind of uh, at the wrong time in the wrong place. Uh, so you don't, there's no need to allow oneself to be run over, no, no need to be a doormat. That's not what kindness means. Uh, kindness means you are kind when you want to be kind, uh, when you want to do the right thing. Uh, and uh, you don't allow other people to manipulate you. This is often what happens. We are manipulated by other people. Uh, and that is unpleasant. Uh, and then you can say, no, okay, I'm not going to do that. And that's okay. You're not doing it because you are nasty. You're not doing it saying no because you have ill will. You're saying no because you know that you're now being used. And it's bad for you. It's bad for the other person. So you say, no, thank you. This time I will just let it be. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So uh, you f find that balance somewhere. And when you want to be kind, that's when you are kind. But make sure you want to be kind often. Yeah. That's kind of the critical thing here. Yeah. One of, the, um, one of the best people to be kind to is strangers. Yeah? Because when you are kind to a stranger, there's no manipulation going on. They are not manipulating you. You are not manip manipulating them because you will never see them again. So be kind to a stranger. Uh, walk in the street and say good morning to a stranger. It's kind of nice. Some, sometimes people do that. Uh, I have been doing a few walks here just to get a bit of exercise. And I sometimes say, say you know, good morning to people. Hello, how are you? Uh, Sometimes people ignore me completely. Uh, they think I'm some kind of weirdo. Then they, they don't want to talk to this guy. He's, he's dangerous. Uh, but other times people are really, really ch chirpy. And, oh, yeah, good morning and hello back. And, uh, you know, good day, mate, some people say. And uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, 
And uh, so, you know, and sometimes you can make someone's day if you're by saying things, yeah, or just saying something kind, someone you meet in the street and you say, oh, please, please go first, yeah, please, you, you go first, uh, or, or you just something very simple, oh, that's a nice, well, you're playing golf, I said, I was down on the golf course the other day and someone Oh, have you? I said to someone, "Have you been look, looking around in the grass?" And I said, "Oh, you lost your ball, golf ball, have you?" I said, "Yes, sir. I'll, I'll let, let you know if I find it." I told him, uh, and he laughed when I said that. And it's kind of nice. Sometimes it's small things that can make people's day, yeah. Because uh, you, you kind of you have all these little things going on in your life, uh, so you see the opportunities. You take the opportunities when they're there with strangers, with anyone. Don't be afraid of making a fool of yourself. Uh, yeah. Who cares if you make a fool of yourself? You don't make it fully yourself anyway. It's just some kind of weird judgment that we have about ourselves. But actually, you don't. As long as you're trying to be kind, you never make a fool of yourself. It's always a positive thing yeah, what you're doing. Yeah. You have to take a few risks in life. If you don't take any risks, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Um, yes, when you are kind, we expect others to be kind in return. Don't expect that. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is wrong expectation right away. Be kind just because kindness is good. And others will be kind in return, maybe not straight away, maybe not the next day, but in the long run they will be kind in return because we want to be kind to kind people. Have you noticed that? If someone is kind to you, you tend to want to be kind in return. That's what I find anyway. I don't want to be nasty to kind people. It feels terrible. But if someone is nasty to you, it's more difficult to be kind in return, right? So generally speaking, if you're kind, generally speaking, people will be kind back. But don't expect it. Uh, expect them not to be kind, yeah? so you don't get any kind of shock when they, when they do, do the wrong thing in return. Uh. So then you are on the right track, yeah? especially in close relationships. Yeah, it is, that is difficult because in close relationships we are very much into manip manipulating. Yeah? And sometimes we are kind because it is really... Partly, at least, an act of manipulation. Okay, I'm kind, be kind back. Yeah, I expect this. So it's not a pure act of kindness in the same way. If it is completely pure, you have no expectations in return. It's hard, but this is really where you have to, what you have to kind of aim for. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, may I ask if you could give us a mini guided meditation in regard to the gladded brighten, brightening the mind. Uh, this will help in inspiring us further. Thank you so much. Uh, all right, I'll put it over here and we'll see what we can do. Dear Ajahn, does chanting Buddhist chantings at time of death of loved ones always have an effect on the chitta of the dying person, uh, likely to result in a good rebirth? Uh, Maybe it depends. If they, if they like Buddhist chanting, it probably have a good effect. If they hate Buddhist chanting, probably have a bad effect. <laughs> so ask them first whether they really like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, a lot of the effect is just that people are used to it. Yeah. If you come from a Buddhist background, you're used to hearing Buddhist chanting, and you feel good about it. So you feel glad, and of course, then we can play Buddhist chanting. Yeah. But not everyone has a kind of natural affinity to Buddhist chanting. So then you, uh, you, okay, maybe this is the wrong person. So the chanting, there's no magic there. There's, it's just ask yourself how it works psychologically. Yeah, This is kind of the most important thing here. And... Um, yeah, so... Uh, and, and it can, you know, if someone is... have been a good Buddhist their whole life, then chanting can maybe have a very positive effect on them because they feel that. Uh, so... Um, Otherwise, I would, you know, if I were dying, I would ask Ajahn Brahm, say, oh, Ajahn, can you do some chanting for me? That's what I would say, because I know Ajahn Brahm has a very powerful mind, yeah? so if he does some chanting for me, then it would probably be really beneficial. That's what I would, I would do. But, uh, yeah, he gets a lot of, uh, many people asking him to chant for him. Yeah, it's pretty tough to be Ajahn Brahm, uh, all these people asking him for chanting and things. Uh, but, um, yeah. All right, go on to the next one. Dear Ajahn, many thanks for your teachings. Could you please talk about distortion of perceptions? We gratitude. Distortion of perception. So the distortion of perception that he talked about in the suttas, sanya vipalasa, vipalasa is like often the translation that is translated into distortion, 
And uh, there are, the Buddha talks about four ways in which we are distorted. Yeah, that is seeing permanence in what is permanent, impermanent, uh, seeing happiness in what is actually suffering, uh, seeing a self in what is non-self, uh, and seeing beauty in something that is not really beautiful. Uh, that is the, uh, the distortion of perceptions. Uh, and um, this is very obvious, and this is precisely why we do things like maranasati, contemplation of death, or maranasanya, because that reminds us that that feeling we have that life is not coming to an end. Yeah, we know we're going to die, but we're not going to die tomorrow, right? Maybe we are going to die tomorrow. That's, maybe that's the problem. Huh? So this feeling we have, we are not really quite realistic about death. We know it, but we don't know it. We don't know it deeply enough. We're not ready to die straight away. But we should be ready to die straight away because eventually it is going to be straight away. When the day comes, it's going to happen straight away. So you have to be ready at all times because you don't know when that straight away is going to be. If you're not ready now, chances are you will not be ready when it actually happens. This is overcoming that vipalasa, the perception that things are far more permanent than they actually are. It feels like it's going to go on, but actually it is not. And that is the problem. That is with, um, with impermanence. Yeah? And the, one of the biggest impermanences in life is precisely death. That is a big time of impermanence. Uh, suffering is the same. Yeah, we need to sometimes we need to remind ourselves of the problems of life. Uh, we tend to think that life is all well until disasters strike. And then when disasters strike, then only then do we understand how much suffering there can be in life. Uh, yeah, there are, it's um, sometimes remarkable how much suffering some individuals can go through and we all go through big suffering sometimes. Uh, so again, we need to remind ourselves what does it mean to lose your loved ones? Uh, what does that actually mean? Uh, how painful is it going to be? What does it mean when Buddhism is going down the drain? When your favorite teachers die? What, what happens at Bodhinana Monasu when Ajahn Brahm dies? Uh, don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, but I better be, better be ready for it because it's going to happen sooner or later. So the dukkha is always around the corner precisely because of impermanence. You never know what's going to happen next. Uh, and so you contemplate these things. You contemplate the limitations of the sensory world. Yeah. We have this distortion, this idea that there is happiness to be found in the sensory world. So we go out pursuing things in the sensory world. We think we know where happiness is to be found, but actually we are clueless. We don't know where happiness is going to be found. We look for it in the wrong place all the time. That's why we are so keen in trying to sort out the world, get the world right. Oh no, there's a war in Ukraine. That wasn't part of my plan. I didn't plan for that. I forgot about that. There's a COVID pandemic, there's the wrong government in power, there's whatever, yeah. I didn't plan for those things, but things always go wrong. That world is always going to be out of control. And the more you understand that, the more you understand the dukkha of the sensory world. And you withdraw from that. You don't think that there is happiness in that world to be had that you can control and you can grasp. And so you pull back, you straighten out that perception, you reduce the vipalasa. Sense of self is more obvious. We all feel like we exist in the way that we don't actually exist in the way we think. And so you need to, this is more profound yeah, in the final analysis anyway, but you can start by seeing how when the ego, they talk about this quite a bit already, when the ego declines in meditation, you think less about things, then you feel better. Less ego, less self, you feel better about things. This is how you overcome these vipalasas. The final one is the idea of suba. Yeah, and the suba, vipalasa suba means beauty. So you see the beauty in what actually is not beautiful. Of course, one of the things we see beauty is in bodies. We think bodies are beautiful. But I always like the idea of just, uh, just take the skin off the body here and then ask yourself if that kind of detracts a little bit from the beauty here. Detracts a little bit from the beauty, right? It's the body without skin is not quite the same as the body with skin. And they had this beautiful exhibition, as I remember, in Perth. At the same time, we had the global conference on Buddhism in Perth back in 2009 or something. 
And there's a, this crazy German professor, Günther von der Hagen or whatever, uh, and he had this show called Körperwelten or something like that. Like my German is uh, abysmal, but I, I know I, li- I used to live in Germany as a child, but it's all disappeared. Uh, and Körperwelten means like body worlds. And he had stripped bodies of their skin. Uh, so you could see bodies without skin. And uh, yeah, you can imagine what it looks like. Yeah. And these were kind of nice bodies without skin. Yeah? They were kind of still sanitized, but still not very beautiful to see a body without skin. Yeah? So just remind yourself that skin is on, uh, beauty is only skin deep, as the saying goes. And that's actually very true, yeah? with a, literally true with the body. Yeah? It takes away some of that uh, attachment to the body. Yeah? Don't take it too far. Don't take it to the point where you start feeling disgusted with your body and you commit suicide and these kind of things. Uh, that, that's going too far. Yeah? But uh, sometimes it can be can be useful. Okay. Oh, we're running out of time. So, how, dear Ajahn, how to apply the principles of dependent origination and liberation in daily life? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> the, the, the dependent liberation has so much in it. Yeah, there's so many teachings in this one thing. Yeah. But uh, the idea is just, one of the main ideas is just to remember how feelings give rise to craving. Yeah, yeah? that's one of the main ideas in dependent origination. And that is where sensory restraint happens. Uh, that's where you have to be smart. Uh, and uh, you, feeling can be like a memory from the past that this is really worthwhile. Or feeling can be a memory from the past that this person is nasty. And you buy into those memories and then craving or aversion arise in your mind. Uh, so just remember that connection between feeling and craving here yeah? and be aware of what arises in your mind. Keep an even mind. Uh, challenge the ill will. Challenge the excessive desires. Yeah? This is the most important thing yeah? uh, that can be, comes out of dependent origination. Yeah? Many other things could be said, but that is a, is a very useful one here. Yeah? Respected Ajahn, you mentioned yesterday not to look at mind states of depression, fear, anxiety, etc. One tends to wallow in it. But isn't that Chittanupassana all about? If one is not mindful, aware of these states, how will one overcome it? Chittanupassana, as it is explained in the Anapanasati Sutta, is all about happy states of mind. Yeah? You don't actually have to look at the bad states of mind. This is what is so interesting. Yeah? And this is what was I was saying before. You have the Vedana Nupassana, the contemplation of feeling. It does mention those negative feelings. It's true. It does mention that in the Satipatthana Sutta. Yeah? It talks about Dukkha Vedana. It talks about Nira. It talks about Asamisa Dukkha Vedana. Niramisa Dukkha Vedana. These are painful feelings, worldly painful feelings, or carnal or five sense uh, painful feelings, and then spiritual painful feelings. Three kinds of painful feelings. It does mention that there, but if you go to the Anapanasati Sutta, all it talks about is bliss in feelings. What that means is that you understand those negative feelings through their absence by experiencing bliss. Uh, You can bypass them completely. You don't have to sit there contemplating those things. In fact, if they are there in your body, it's very hard to contemplate because they block your ability to see them clearly. Much better to contemplate them in the absence. Exactly the same thing is true for the citta nupasana contemplation of the mind. You, you know the depression and the sadness and all of the, those things by instead contemplating the joy and the happiness in the mind. Now all of that sadness is gone. Yeah, it's all disappeared. Now I understand what these things really are about. Yeah, and then you can overcome them. What you can do, to some extent, you can try to understand the causes why you feel sad and anxious and depressed. Yeah, That is one of the things you can do, and that is true. Um, you can do that maybe in meditation, or you can do it during daily life. You can do it almost at any time. And suddenly you will get a glimpse into why these mental states are bothering you. You can see how your mind is... Uh, creating these things what are the causes that suddenly why am i feeling so anxious and suddenly one day you realize i'm thinking about this in this way why am i thinking like this okay let me try to think differently here depression is the same thing you start to realize you are depressed because you are 
you're having negative thoughts about yourself. You think you are useless, or you think the world is useless, or whatever. And suddenly one day you get a glimpse. Well, that's what I'm thinking, actually. But sometimes it's so deep, it can be hard to see. But this is one of the things you can contemplate. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't call that chitta nupassana. I would call it just more understanding in general. Yeah, just being aware of your mind states. Chitta nupassana is very profound, too profound really to be that this is part of that. So, um, yes, be mindful and aware of these states. In particular, understand why they are there. Understand the causality. Once you understand the causality, you can do something with it because the co- eliminating the cause will eliminate the result. Okay, there's a few more questions. I'm, I'm going to just carry on a little bit and see if we can come to an end. So if you need to go, please feel free to go at any time. Dear Arjan, how do monks manage to go on Tudong barefoot, especially in countries like India where the streets are not exactly clean? <laughs> Why can't monks wear thongs on Pindabata? Thanks. Uh, they can. If, if there's, there is a rules for sickness, yeah, if you're going to get sick or ill, then you are allowed to wear footwear. Uh, in, in this suit. So you are allowed to wear footwear in those kind of situations. But normally on Pindabad, it's a sign of humility. Yeah? In ancient India, having shoes was considered already kind of high status in a sense. Poor people didn't have shoes in those days. And monks were supposed to be ordinary, weren't supposed to have a kind of status. That is why there were no shoes. In the present day, it's a bit different. Yeah, everyone has shoes. In fact, if you don't wear shoes in the city, people probably think you're crazy. Yeah, it's almost the opposite. You should really wear shoes in the city, especially downtown, maybe not around here, but certainly you know, down in the CBD or whatever. So these things are not you know, cast in stone. They are they're kind of... It, um, it depends on the circumstances. But it's nice to walk barefoot. I don't know, I, I really enjoy walking barefoot, actually. And if it is in the suburbs like here, in Perth, we walk barefoot on Pindabat in the suburbs, and it's perfectly fine, no problem at all. So, uh, But some monks who have problems with their feet, they wear shoes. Dear Ajahn, Thank you for the beautiful explanations. How do you calm down the mind when someone is experiencing strong negative emotions, sometimes manic episodes? Many thanks. Um, yes. So if the experience is very strong and negative, then you, it's very hard to calm down. Yeah, You can't really do it at that time. And uh, what you sometimes need to do, you need to kind of wait for those emotions to kind of dissipate and come back at another time when they are weaker. Yeah. That's really the um, the way forward. Yeah. So you have to sometimes you just have to wait, and you have to, you know, if, if these things are very powerful and strong, then sometimes the Buddhist path cannot resolve all kind of emotional imbalances in people. And sometimes it is worthwhile if you have some serious psychological disturbances to see a psychiatrist or psychologist or someone. That can be a useful thing to do. There's nothing wrong with combining Buddhism with other kind of professional treatment. Yeah, these things come together. And there's nothing embarrassing about this. Everyone occasionally has psychological states that are out of control and then it can be useful to have some professional help. Learn to look at the things differently. Learn, you know, using your mind in a wise way. But uh, so the combination of, you know, of practicing in the Buddhist way, doing your best to practice kindness to everyone, changing your perception about things, uh, all of these things will work combined then with maybe some therapy with someone who knows how to deal with um, big emotional disturbances. Uh, so just slowly, slowly. Sometimes you can't really meditate very much with these things. Yeah, Strong, bad emotions, you, you may very well not be, maybe you are wasting your time, unless you're just relaxing and chilling out. Yeah. You can call up meditation if you like, but just chill out, just sitting back and just leaning against the wall, and it's oh, you know, I just need to let go a little bit and just uh, enjoy myself. And maybe that can be helpful, uh, even though it may not be meditation in the full sense of the Buddha's idea of the 
Word. Okay, just, I think I can just finish these things off and see how we go. Venerable Ajahn Brahmali, many thanks for your teachings. If possible, please do a guided death contemplation. Okay, put that one down here as well. So coming, we're coming late in the retreat, so we'll see what we can, uh, can do. Maybe tomorrow we can do something. Dear Bhikkhu Brahmali, gratitude for your inspirational teachings. Much merit to you. Your teaching of dependent liberation has helped me understand... Hopefully, we'll do a guided death meditation and have rediscovered the, the gladness. Uh, thank you. Okay, so maybe we can do a guided death meditation. It seems to be popular. We'll come to the last one. Those are very fast questions. So, uh, hi, Ajahn. I recently was introduced... I, I recently was introduced to inner child, inner teenager, critical parent work... Uh, how could this relate to the thinking? How could this relate to the thinking? Is that what it says? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. All right. Don't know what this means. I have no transactional psychology. Transactional psychology. Yeah, I don't know. It's in vogue these days. It was years ago. It was quite popular. Uh huh. You know, you have the inner child, and actually playful and boisterous. Okay. Yeah. And you have the critical, uh, you have the parent that's telling you what's good for you, and you know, you have all these different uh -huh. voices, but uh, uh -huh. different aspects of the personality. I see. Yeah. But you don't, way you, okay. you don't take them too seriously. I see. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So I guess what it means is that a lot of things you need to distinguish, I think, between um, personality and defilements. Uh, these are two different things. Uh, so personality, of course, you have different personality depending on whether you are a child, whether you are a teenager, whether you're grown up. There will be slight differences between male and female, probably. There will be differences depending on your background, how you're brought up, your culture, all of these kind of things. We'll be slightly different. I mean, our human experience is largely the same, but there will be slightly cultural differences. And that's called personality. And personality is no problem. Yeah? People can be different. You can be a teenager, you can be a bit rebellious, and you can still have a good heart. Uh, you can be the critical parent, perhaps, but you can still have a good heart, meaning, well, uh, yeah, the inner child who wants to rebel or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, so you need to make that distinction between personal characteristics uh, and defilements. Uh, and that is the defilements that you want to overcome. Uh, personal characteristics is no problem. Uh, and sometimes you will find that sometimes people can be quite stern, yeah. And you find some of these uh, famous teachers in the Thai forest tradition or whatever; they can be quite stern sometimes. Uh, sometimes it looked as the Buddha was quite stern, yeah. Occasionally, not often, but occasionally. Uh, and but it doesn't come from defilement, yeah. It comes from goodwill. It comes from trying to resolve a solution in a good way. But it's just the way they talk is slightly different. Uh, so make that distinction, if you can distinguish between personality on the one hand uh, and defilement on the other, uh, then you're on the right track. Yeah. So uh, that is really what this is about, I think. Yeah. Anyway, that is all for tonight. So let us just pay homage to the Triple Gem and then uh, have a good night and we'll see you again tomorrow.